Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And a great crowd came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. They put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus feeds the 4,000. When Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. I had Spencer read that first because we're not going to focus on that passage. I'm going to refer to it because it follows where I want to focus. And that is on verses 21 through 28. So that's where we're going to start is in verse 21. Um, Anita and I have a place in our home that we call considered sacred space, and that is our dining room table, our, our kitchen table. We don't have a dining room, a kitchen table. And it was... Um, Many years ago, we came into a little bit of inheritance, and we spent it on that table. We said, we want to make sure that when we eat together, it's time well spent, not just to eat physically, grow, and nourish ourselves, but to enrich and, and encourage one another in our relationships and in the Lord. And so I think I figured out roughly, it's over 2,100 meals the six of us had together over the 30 years that we had kids and in the home, in part or in all, in full. And if you think about that, 2,100 meals, right? And some of them, they were so sleepy, they'd falling into their cereal face first, and they weren't hearing a thing, and not all of us were necessarily at all of those meals, but some of us were at all of those meals. And the reason I love that space so much is, is because I'm there with my, if I have to, pick just a handful of people that are my people. Those are my people, right? It's your wife and your kids. And, and so now they're all, they're all out of the house, right? And um, they're, all, they're all at their own tables, starting their families. And um, so we get to see them a couple times a year and, you know, holidays. Maybe we get them all at the table at the same time. Sometimes you don't, but you, you, you surround that table with whoever can get there. And, and sitting at the head of that table and looking out over that is just beautiful because these are my beloved. And I want to communicate that every time. It's all I can do not to preach. It really is because I want to tell them so much. And so you just get that, you know, we're going to pray, and then we're going to eat, right? So you get that moment, and it's not always, I don't always pray. It's sometimes someone else does, but just being able to look at that, I want them to always remember you're beloved. You're beloved by your parents. 
And, and Jesus uses this imagery in Scripture a lot, okay? He uses it um, maybe in the most profound way when he talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb, okay? What is that wedding feast of the Lamb? When we collectively, which we are called the church, the people, not the building, collectively we're called the church, we're called the body of Christ, we're also called the bride of Christ, and Scripture is, is describing something that's it's, it's metaphorical for something spiritual, but it's also very real and tangible, a feast that is going to occur in the new heaven and the new earth. And it's going to be for the groom, Jesus, and for his bride, his people. Okay, And food always symbolizes blessings from God. Now, who doesn't want to be blessed by their creator, right? We want that. We, we yearn for that. We crave that. We go after all kinds of things in our world to try to fill that spot in our, that craving. The only thing that satisfies is, is Jesus. But he uses that imagery over and over and over. Now, there's a, there's a verse I'm going, to refer to, I'm going to go to here briefly in Revelation 3 that kind of gets at that, that will help you get to where I hope we're going to end up when we drill down on this, these few verses. So if you um, have your Bibles, you want to flip to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 3. Revelation uh, is um, an apocalyptic kind of literature, which basically means it's full of so much symbolism, it's really hard to read and understand. But in these first few chapters, it's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of imagery still there, but this is what's happening. Jesus is speaking to seven different churches in, in the form of, of letters. And, and so I want to read part of one of those letters. They're very short. Um, the one to Laodicea. And this is, I'm going to start reading in verse 14, and I'm going to read through verse 20. And it's where I end that kind of picks up, you'll see this motif. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and this is Jesus speaking to John who's writing, so he's writing this down for Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, which is, means to the people who were part of that church. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, Jesus describing himself. I know your deeds, he says to these folks. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. This is all metaphorical. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And that was the posture of the people that were part of that church. But you do not realize that you are, parenthetically, actually, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Why? So you can become rich. I might, you might say truly rich. And white clothes to wear, which would signify righteousness, so you can cover your shameful nakedness caused by sin and salve and put on your eyes so that you can see the truth that sets you free, so you can see. Okay? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. There's a lot of debate over who, whether these people in this church are saved or not. To me, this says they at least had a relationship with Jesus that was good, and now they have a relationship where they're out of fellowship with him. In other words, they're not on good terms with the Lord. Because he says this, because he says, I love and I rebuke and discipline whom I love. Okay? 
And I, I equate that to his people, his bride. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? Eat with that person and they with me. Picture fellowship in, the most, in one of the most intimate ways is to sit down and have a meal. This is why hospitality is so important in so many parts of the world because this permeates our DNA, our spiritual DNA, to be hospitable, right? It's not just eat with people either. It's bring them into your home and eat with them in your home. There's something vulnerable about that, something humble about that that God uses, okay? Now, I just want you to kind of take that and kind of put it really close by mentally as we go into this, this, um, this, this story is one that people don't like to preach because it's really uncomfortable. Not necessarily for you, (laughs) for once, right? But for Jesus, we think, because it makes him look bad, we think. But we don't understand because we don't always understand the culture, okay? And you guys, I know when you guys, um, many times you are so encouraging to me and you say nice things to me like, man, you just really, really, I learned a lot or really made a lot of different, I really appreciate what you said. And I know I look smart at times because I say some smart things, but I just want you to know I didn't come up with any of those things, okay? I'm not that good. <laughs> People write really good books that help me think through how to read this, Okay. Now, I don't want to give the impression that you can't read this and take away great wisdom from it without a book. You can. It's designed to do that, okay? It helps to know a little bit about the culture from somebody who studied it and maybe even lived there some. And so I want to recommend this book. This was one of the books that helped me with this one in particular. The name of the book is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's by a guy named Kenneth Bailey who is a Westerner who spent a lot of years living in the Middle East, and he observed that there was a lot of culture in the Middle East that was still present, that was present in biblical days, because they don't like to change there, (laughs) right? I mean, they've been fighting, right? We, We talk about you can't find peace in the Middle East. They've been fighting since Abraham. Well, it goes back further than that, actually, but this particular battle between Jews and the rest of them, that's... Isaac and Ishmael, you realize that, right? Abraham, first son from not the, he's not the son of the promise. Isaac, son of the promise. Battle. It is not going to stop, okay? So people like Kenneth Bailey helped, really helped me. Um, Sean O'Donnell is one of the guys that's been helping me a lot with the book of Matthew. So is David Platt, and there are others. Um, R.C. Sproul is another one, um, and I could, uh, um, Warren Wearsby, and, and there, there are others. And so Anytime, and I always put this in my sermon notes. I always have a bibliography at the bottom because I don't want people to think this is all coming from me just reading the Bible and poof, I just figure it out because it's not that way, okay? I'm learning alongside of you, and I forget it almost as quick as you do, okay? So, you know, but God uses it in our lives, so let's just be grateful for that. All right, let's see what the Scriptures say because that's what counts at the end of the day. Um, We are continuing through Matthew 15, and he's going to say, leaving that place, leaving what place? If you remember our little map, we have the Sea of Galilee, and northwest of there, last week we were in the valley called Gennesaret. Okay, so we're in Jewish territory. We're in the northern part of Jewish territory, which is called Galilee. 
And Jesus is going to leave Jewish territory for the first time, at least the first time as an adult. Yeah, he lived in Egypt, so there was the time when he was in Egypt. Um, he was an immigrant. Sorry, no political statement there, just saying. He was an immigrant. And um, I just want you to see here, so it's traveling. He, Jesus withdrew from the region that would be Galilee to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon today are in modern-day Lebanon, east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, if you've ever heard of the, um, one of the, the Phoenician Empire, this is those folks. But even before them, they were called many other, probably many other nations. But if you go back far enough, you get to Canaanites. Okay? And when you read the Old Testament, you hear about all these different groups of people, and the last three letters are I-T-E, the Girgashites and the Jebusites and the Termites. I mean, you just right, it goes on and on and on. The, the Canaanites is kind of an umbrella name for all of them. And if you go all the way back, their, parent, their forefather was Ham, okay, one of the three sons of Noah, the one that was cursed, okay? And the Canaanites are the ancient enemies of Israel, okay? So he's going into that territory. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. I'm going to read it all, and then we'll come back. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In context, I think, is he saying that to her in front of them? The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. This is confusing, strange, but there's a lot happening here, and that's why. And a lot of it is cultural, and that's why we're not seeing it. So let me see if I can help you understand what I think and, and what helpful, a lot of help from Kenneth here. But, um, this is, but they don't all agree, right? I can read lots of books, but they don't always agree. And so it's like, Lord, what do you want me to, what's important here? What do you want us to take away from this? And I, and I think there's two things in particular. One is um, this idea, bigger picture, are, are you sitting at the table with Jesus? In other words, if he was sitting at the head of your table and your spiritual buffet, would he look at you as his beloved? Okay, that's, a, that's the big question I'm, I want to answer today, is are you sitting at the table? And, and another question that follows is, if, I, if you're not, how do, I sit, how do I get to the table? And the answer is faith. And that is not only amplified here, but in the feeding of the 4,000. Because what differentiates the feeding of the 4,000 from the feeding of the 5,000, which we just saw a couple weeks ago, the big difference is the feeding of the 5,000 was done in Israeli territory for Jews. Well, that's what we would expect God to do to bless his people. But the 4,000 happens in Gentile territory where the majority of people are not Jews. And that's going to smack a lot of people's theology sideways 
in the Jewish nation. And that's part of what he's doing here. You see, Jesus understands that life is lived in community. And he is communing with the disciples, and he's pouring into these 12 in particular, and he's pouring to others as well, but they get most of his time. It's like the closer to Jesus you get, the fewer people are allowed, and, and the more time they get. Okay, that's a good principle, by the way. You can't spend a lot of time with everybody. So who are you going to spend the most time with? And, and you just have to decide who they are. And I think God is... If you need a clue, God gives you family and says, why don't you start with your family <laughs> and then move out from there, okay? And, and Jesus, okay, so Jesus doesn't have a wife. Jesus doesn't have children. And so who does Jesus start with? Well, he handpicks his sons in the faith and daughters too, okay? But he starts with these 12 men because that's what culturally was done. And even if you'll catch him spending time with just three or four, He's giving them insights and, and, and time and attention that the others don't have. In fact, sometimes they're jealous. And then from there you have the 70, which I don't know if that includes the 12 or not. I've never been able to get a definitive answer on that. I've heard, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> and then you have the ladies who were a part of his ministry that aren't in this, the 70 or the 12 because they're not men, and, but yet they're there, and they actually fund Jesus' ministry. So Jesus was influencing lots of people. And then you have the crowds, right? And, and the it's, it's, this is, sorry, all that to say, sociology would tell, sociologists would tell us you can accomplish different things in different size groups that you can't accomplish in the other size groups. And so Jesus ministers in very small groups, in small groups, in mid-sized groups, and in very large groups to accomplish different things, all towards the glory of God, all for his gospel agenda. And we need to interact in different size groups as well, okay? But that's, that's not what we're focusing on today. All right, so he's, he's, got two, he's got two agendas going on here. One is the woman before him, he's dealing with her. And the other agenda is I'm, I'm still teaching these 12 guys how to do this ministry thing because he knows two things about them. He knows they're prejudiced against women and they're, and they're prejudiced against Gentiles. And he knows that their theology will not allow for God to bless the Gentiles like he blesses the, the Jews. That's where they are. That's why they're so quick when Jesus doesn't say anything. They're not surprised he doesn't say anything. And so they're encouraging Jesus to do what they wish they could do, but they're a little scared to do because, you know, Jesus is a little unpredictable sometimes. And so they go, Jesus, make her go away. So let's read through it again, and let me just unpack this um, briefly. Here we go. So a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, what does she do right away? She cries out, okay? And if you did a study of the word cry and cry out in Scripture, you would find that God answers those kinds of prayers. Okay, the desperate prayers, God loves to answer those. But anyway, um, son of David, why would she say that? How would she even know? She's not a Jew. She doesn't study the Scripture. She doesn't go to synagogue. Jesus' reputation for healing many, many people has been so big that it's even getting outside the borders of Israel, okay? And so she knows he heals. She knows he's a man of compassion and integrity, and she's willing to try even though she knows the odds are stacked against her. Because in that day, in fact, even today in the Middle East in conservative areas, men and women will not talk to each other in public. It's just not done. 
when we had our Afghan family come that uh, we um, welcomed and, and helped get settled here in America, we didn't know if they might be that way. We just we were told, don't be surprised. It's like men don't look at the woman in the eyes and, and don't talk unless spoken to if it's a different gender. All these things are cultural things that some people still adhere to. Well, it was big time back in Jesus' day. Okay? And a rabbi never spoke to a woman in public, even her own family, even his own family. They would not speak to him in public. Okay? In private, yeah. But even then, if it was a stranger, it was like very, it was, it was kind of a dance. And so here she's coming, approaching 13 men who are Jews and she is not. And she, but she tells you how desperate she is. Why? Because her daughter is suffering from demon possession and physical suffering that is a part of that, okay? Now, I believe demons are just as real today as they were in this day 2,000 years ago, okay? We don't see them in a lot of our circles, but that doesn't mean they're not in other circles, okay? Some of it has to do with where you go, and some of it has to do with where you are. And, um, but here's what, here's what I know, that demon possession, is a, it affects you spiritually, and it affects you mentally and emotionally and physically. And sometimes a demon can do things to you that, against your physical will, like throw you around, give you convulsions, um, seizures, and the like, okay? So um, all this to say, if, we, if you and I were to see someone demon-possessed being um, handled by that demon, we would be terrified. That would just terrify us because, one, we're not used to seeing that, and two, it's horrific to see anyway, Okay? Now, um, so she is desperate for her daughter, all right? Now, I want you to, you may not have kids, but if you have kids and you just think about the last time they were seriously hurt, sick, in the hospital, or just you don't know, then you have an inkling of where she's coming from. You'll do anything for that kid to get them okay, all right? You feel powerless. Well, if you can do something, you're going to do something. All right, so this is, this is where she is. She calls him Lord. Now, Lord can mean sir, and it can mean Lord in the biblical sense. Well, we know from context and the rest of it that she's meaning more than just sir because she calls him son of David. And if we were to page back to Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew reminds us, and I keep taking you back here, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does it matter? Well, it certainly matters because this is where David, this is where Jesus gets his authority. It's through the line, first from God, and then through the line of David is the dynasty that he's a part of. He's a king of kings, but he's not just one of David's great, great, greats. Because it says in Psalms that David will kneel before this son. Well, why would he kneel before a grandson? He wouldn't unless that grandson was greater than he. And the only way that could be possible if he was both humanly a king of David and also divine. And that's the Messiah. So she says, son of David. And then she says, so she approaches him like a Jew, which is not a good idea for a Gentile to do, by the way. And she approaches him as a beggar. Have mercy on me was what the beggar said. That's what a beggar would say. And I've heard this, and you probably heard this too, um, as a definition for what it looks like for a Christian to share their faith, to basically share the gospel, which means good news, is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. If you're a beggar and you're hungry and you run into another beggar that you happen to know, and they go, hey, come here. 
I know where there's some great leftovers. And you say, I know a restaurant that's opened their back door and they are giving us all the spaghetti we can eat, right? That would be good news if you were that other beggar, wouldn't it? Now, we can't relate to that because most of us have not gone hungry for more than a meal unless it's by choice. So we don't really know what it's like to be a beggar. So you're going to have to use your imagination here. Think Lady and the Tramp? No, that's not really going to help us either. But they did eat spaghetti out back in the alley. All right, so um, here we have, she's, she's doing this. Now, and, and so you, you hear this and you go, well, clearly Jesus is going to have compassion on this woman. I mean, she, she doesn't really need, this is amazing. I mean, of course he's going to. And it says Jesus did not answer a word. This is where I say it starts to make Jesus look really bad. Why would he hesitate to help her? Remember, he's got two purposes in what he's doing. He's focused on her, but he's also got them in mind. The 12 are watching, and he knows their prejudice, and he knows their theological bias. Okay, And he's trying to teach them something in a way they'll never forget. So he's silent. And the disciples read that as, well, this is what we expect, because we don't talk to strange women who are Gentile dogs. We don't talk to them in public. So that's why they say, so the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. It's like calling all this attention on us. This is embarrassing. You know, that's kind of the way I read it. And Jesus then answers, but I think he's looking at her. And I don't think he says this harshly. I think he just says it. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He's looking at her, and I think he just says it. And it's true His father sent him to the lost sheep of Israel, the people, to the Jews. That's who God sent Jesus to first. That wasn't the end of the mission, but this was the strategy. I'm sending Jesus to my people, and my people are supposed to take it to the ends of the earth. In fact, if you really get, you know, that's what I told Abraham, and they still haven't listened to me, so I'm sending my one and only son because they killed all the other guys I sent and told them to do that. Maybe they won't kill my son. Oh, wait. This is the woman's response. Okay, she's been loud. She's cried out. She said, son of David, have mercy on me, Lord. And he's quiet, and then he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So what does she do? She falls on her knees. She humbles herself. She's in a posture of worship. And she says, Lord, help. She doesn't say, help my daughter. She says, help me. She is at the end of her rope. Lord, help me. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Some of you know what I mean. Some of you have prayed that prayer. Lord, help me. Look at his reply. If the first one was resistance, this feels like a rebuke. This is the last thing we expect from Jesus. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He calls her a dog. Now, in case you're wondering, he's not calling her Bingo or Spot or Benji or Snoopy. She's not calling, he's not calling her a pet. 
Gentiles were known and referred to as dogs by the Jews. They looked down to them. And you know where they put dogs in the pecking order of animals? Just above pigs. And you know what they thought about pigs, right? Unclean. And they had dogs. Because the dogs in that day were, at best, half-tamed guard dogs if they weren't just roaming packs of wild dogs that were just terrorizing the streets, okay? They were not good to have around. I'm not saying there weren't exceptions and that people didn't have a, a pet here and there, but that was not something that the Jews did. Now, this is where it helps to read books that help you understand a language you don't know. I don't know Greek. Jesus knew Greek. I don't know Greek. Jesus knew Aramaic. I don't know Aramaic. Jesus knew Hebrew. I know I took a class, but I still don't know Hebrew. Okay? But if you look at the Greek, which is what the New Testament is mostly written in, and it's not today's Greek, it's Koine Greek, which is a dead language like Latin. It's unchanged. It's locked in. This is the way that reads. I'm in verse uh, 26. He replied, it's not right to take the children's, I'm sorry, the next verse, 27. Um, I, I don't love, do you have that verse up? Can you put that verse up? I don't know that, um, I like this translation a little bit better too. 27, the NIV translation, I think, makes it look like she's arguing with Jesus. She is disagreeing with him, but it makes it, I think, look harsh. So I'm going to read it this way. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the little dogs eat the little crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, I wouldn't have picked this up, but um, the way they read this is that actually she's responding as if she gets it. She, she gets it. Sorry. He's testing her. She, every time he has responded to her, including with silence, he's given her a reason to back off and give up. And she hasn't yet, has she? He's testing her with some really hard tests. And you can say, well, that's not very nice. I mean, she's a Gentile woman, dog. I mean, why would you make it hard for her, right? And we're insulting her when we do that. You realize that, right? Because if you're a track coach and you're fastest runner on the team, you're trying to figure out what race to put him in, if you put him in any race other than the toughest race, you're dishonoring him because if he wins, he didn't race against the best. But if you put him in the best, hardest race and he wins, you've honored him. Same thing here. Because she's going to pass this test. She, we are talking about her 2,000 years later, and we don't know her name, but we are still talking about her. Is that not honoring? That should say something to us about what he says to her at the end. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. That's a parable. That's a mini parable that basically says this. The children are the people of God, God's children, the chosen Jews. In sidebar, they're not chosen because they're really good at following the Lord. Just so you know, they're really bad at it. Just read the Old Testament. Just open it, pick a spot. You're going to hit bad following, okay? But we're not so great either, so um, don't get too um, haughty about that. It is not right for the children's bread. That would be the blessings of God that go to the Jews to be tossed to the dogs, to the rest of the world. And I don't think he says it to her harshly. I think he says it in a way to her is like, if you're paying attention, you know that I'm using this to teach those, those, those 12 idiots that are sitting next to me. Okay? I'm trying to teach them about their prejudice and their theological issues. 
Because if you take their theological issues and you speak them out loud, this is what you have to say to this woman on her knees who is just worshiping Jesus and, and dying for her daughter. And you're going to tell her, oh, we can't bless you because you're not a Jew, right? Anybody that's okay with that theology, you're right? Who, who's going to be drawn to that? That's Jesus' point. That's why he's doing this. He's testing her and he's showing them that your theology is bogus because it lacks love and compassion. Yes, Lord, she said. She's having some fun. She gets it. Even the little dogs, they're still dogs. It's still offensive. What is she doing? She's embracing the insult and pressing through it. Why? Because she has a heart and a sense there's, there's something good at the end of this, and it's worth it. Okay? Some of us need to push through some insults and some suffering, and some stuff that's come our way because there's good on the other side of it, okay? The little dogs eat the little crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, I just need a crumb. Will you give me a crumb? I don't deserve a hunk of bread. I don't deserve a loaf. I don't deserve a slice with butter, but I'll take a crumb because your crumb from you, Lord, will bless my socks off. I don't think she wore socks, but you know what I mean, okay? So then Jesus replies, said to her, woman, and when he says woman and it sounds like, oh, woman, oh, he's not getting in her face and all that, right? Don't read it like that. He's just speaking to her. Make it very clear. I'm not talking to these guys, woman, because they sure don't. You have great faith. Your request is granted. What was her request? That her daughter be healed and the demon be cast out, but it was also, Lord, help me. It was both. Isn't that beautiful? He sees both. And, he, he, and this is how he says it. Your request is granted. He doesn't say your daughter is healed. He doesn't say I've helped you. He says your request is granted. And it was both of those things. See, God blesses above and beyond what we can ask or imagine or think. That's just the way he is. Why? Because he has it all. There's no lack in him. So when you go to him, don't hold back. Ask, seek, knock. Don't be embarrassed that, well, if he doesn't come through, then he looks bad. Let him worry about whether he looks good or bad, okay? That's on him. Jesus looks bad here on the surface, but does he look bad to you now? No, of course not, because he blessed her because that was the right thing to do. And in the process, he brought at least 11 of the 12 along with him. I don't know. And now maybe they get a better idea Oh, man, I've been thinking about this all wrong. That woman clearly deserves mercy. Gosh, how did I ever call her that? Right? We have, our pe- we have people in our lives that we look at like they looked at this woman. As Americans, as some of us Southerners, as I could keep going, right? You know what I mean? And then he makes this whole passage on the feeding of the 4,000 about, I'm going to the rest of the world. And that's how he's going to end the book of Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. And surely I will be with you until the end of the earth. Why? Because all authority has been given to me. You see it? And he's just, he's helping them, he's bringing them along, and he's bringing you and I along. 
because it's real easy for us to look at videos of our, our folks in Uganda going, well, I'm never going to Africa. There's just no way you're getting me on a plane to go to that place. And I don't even know why we would say that. But it's a lack of compassion if it's because if it has if it's not for a legitimate reason. And he calls us to go around the world and he calls us to go around the corner. And we have all kinds of ethnicities in America too. But let's come back to the main question I want to just revisit as we close. Are you at the table with Jesus? Are you sitting at the table with Jesus? Do you feel like, or let me just say, forget feel it. You may not feel it. Do you believe that you are his beloved? Because if you call yourself a Christian, then that's little Christ. That's what that is. It means someone who is walking in the words, ways, and works of Jesus. At least that's the way the Bible defines it. And you wouldn't do that unless you felt he loved you and saved you from sin, death, shame, and guilt, hell itself. Because if you do believe that, then you're like, well, I'm really grateful. I'm so grateful. I actually want to give him my whole life. He gave me his whole life. The least I could do is give back mine. Mine's not worth near what his was because I'm a sinner. I'm, I deserve the punishment. That I deserve the wrath of God. That's what I deserve. But he's made a way so I don't have to. He has called me his beloved, and he has set a place at the table for me. There's a little placard there with my name on it. I might move it so I can sit closer to Anita. I don't know where hers is, but I want to be sitting there. You know, but I want to be, I am at the table, and I'm salivating for the best is yet to come, okay? Not always, because I don't always have my head on right. But that's where we need to be, right? This isn't all there is. And he's helping us get to the place where we believe that so that when we suffer, when we struggle, when we are in despair, we know it's not, there's not, it's not hopeless. It's, there's hope. We're surrounded with people who are hopeless and they need to hear a good word of hope. Are you telling them? Are we saying anything? Well, you know, their skin's not the right color. So... You know, we're going to, if you're white like me, we're going to be in the minority in heaven when they do the heavenly host of all the multitudes of all the nations from all the history. We're going to be in the minority. Hope you're going to have to, you're just going to have to get okay with that. Okay? It doesn't matter. Human race, one race, okay? One ethnicity, one ethne, many nations, but one bride. And the feast is for us in Christ. That's good news. That's hope-filled. You can tell that to someone who's dying of cancer, and it gives them hope that this isn't all there is. Because if you don't believe there's more than life than this, then it is really hopeless when you start hurting. Sometimes when we believe this, it's hard because we forget. But we don't have to. So that's why the feeding of the 4,000 is there. I'm sure there are other good reasons that it's there. The other differences really aren't that big a deal. They were with Jesus for three days, and the feeding of the 5,000, they were there with him one day. The point is they were there. He was healing. He was teaching. And then he did this amazing miracle. He gave thanks to God, and then he gave bread and fish to the disciples. 
and then they gave it to the other people. And he just kept giving it to them, and he never ran out. He never ran out. This time it was only seven pieces of bread and a few fish. And he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. Just gives it. Give, give, give. Why? Because God can and God cares. Okay? If someone is hurting this week and you need to pray with them, you need to just look at them in the eyes and say, God can and God cares. Let's pray. And then you tell them that. You, te- you remind God, which is reminding ourselves. He already, <laughs> I think I can remember that, he says. Um, God, we know that you care and we know that you can do what needs to be done in this situation for this person. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. That's a pretty simple prayer, right? You need some Holy Spirit to help you pray it because it's really hard to do that in the moment. But God can take that simple one-sentence prayer and change a life. I mean, we heard a story from Brian of essentially the same thing. It wasn't even, it was, the words were, don't turn around. <laughs> Usually that's not going to end well, but in that case it did, right? a good book. We should read it, but we should do more than that. We should read it as if God's speaking to us so that we might internalize the truths therein and let them come out of our fingertips in words and deeds that honor him and reflect the character of our creator. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we know you're the son of David, and that means that you're the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who saves people from their sins that otherwise damn us. So Lord, I pray that we would ask ourselves the question, am I sitting at the table with Jesus or not? Because he's inviting us. He stands at the door and knocks. If anyone hears his voice, he will come in and eat with them because he loves them, because he wants them to be sitting at the table next to their little name placard at the end, which is really the beginning of the rest of eternity. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, really, to what you're saying to us today, whatever that is. And Each person is at a different place, and I know you have words for each of us. I pray we would hear those words. I pray that we would understand and comprehend those words. I pray that we would believe those words so fully that we would be willing to act on those words. I pray for the courage to act on those words. And I know you'll give us the faith because you promised to do that by grace through faith. And so, Lord, I pray whether they're a believer or not, that we would all take a step towards Jesus today, repenting of our sins and turning and receiving and believing the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we would become citizens of that kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.